Instructional Designers in Offices Drinking Coffee is brought to you by Domino, makers of Domino One, the all-in-one cloud-based e-learning authoring tool for teams. You can learn more at domino.com. That's D-O-M-I-N-K-N-O-W.com. Now, here's this week's episode. Jiving with Java. <laughs> okay. Is that going to be our new subtitle? There we go. Instructional <laughs> designers in offices. Uh, and jiving, jiving with, with Java, Java, baby. Jiving with Java. My goodness. Oh, well, good morning to everybody. Lots of good mornings in the in the chat. I'd love to see that uh, all the places that people are joining us from. That's always so very cool. Here in Eastern Ontario, weather is coming, or winter is coming upon us, weather. We actually have weather. We never have weather, but today we have weather. I can officially say I don't have weather. We get, unless you can call sun weather. Yeah, that's still weather. Yep, yep. That's good weather. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Sorry, I hate to rub it. Where I'm come from, we call that good weather. Yeah, Yeah, bragger. (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. Who invited you? <laughs> no kidding. Uh, speaking of invitations, we have with us uh, today Carl Kopp. Um, Carl, you've been with us a few times before, but there may be some folks who haven't uh, encountered you yet. Uh, so tell, tell our gang here uh, a little bit about yourself. So, yeah. So um, I always say my day job is as a professor of instructional technology at Bloomsburg University in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, soon to become Pennsylvania's Eastern University. We're doing some merging. So that's uh, very interesting. Now, you know, you hear about all the corporate merges. Now we have an academic merge. Or, um, so that's interesting. Uh, I also uh, have written a number of books, uh, mostly around the concept of games, gamification, and engagement. Um, I also uh, co-founded something called the L&D Mentor Academy, which is a kind of a community group um, helping seasoned L&D professionals uh, move to the next level. Uh, involved with the co-founding of a company called Enterprise GameStack, which we're making digital virtual cards, which is a lot of fun. And uh, I do a lot of consulting and speaking, and I was at Learning 2021 yesterday. So that's the great thing about Zoom, right? <laughs> Learning 2021 yesterday. I'll be doing a pr- presentation there tomorrow, um, and I'm here today. So uh, all kinds of uh, different places to go and visit and um, hang out in the um, – what's the non metaverse called like just in the web web 1.0 are we in or 2.0 yeah. or we're in 1.5 the interweb <laughs> maybe the it's virtue, 2.5 the virtuverse the virtuverse right well i had somebody the other day said i i i, I wrote an article about the metaverse and, and they said oh so our virtual world's now the metaverse and i said what is not the metaverse, right? <laughs> NFTs are metaverse, cryptocurrency is metaverse, virtual worlds, AR, XR. I'm like, okay, let's just throw everything in there and blend it together. Mm-hmm. It's it's the world. And don't forget about uh, Step Away. Uh, yes. Oh, Step Away. Yeah. So uh, thank you. So 
um, uh, Kevin Thorne and Deborah Thomas and myself uh, have created an online experience. Uh, we're uh, doing that in January. We've done it a couple times. Brent was there uh, in person when we did it in Florida <laughs> pre-COVID, which is always fun. Yeah. And um, that's a, an event where we actually create a game from start to finish and you get an artifact. We, we you, you create a card deck and the card deck is kind of an analogy for the creative process. So uh, that's a lot of fun too. So I've been uh, working with that and, and uh, engage with that as well. So, yeah. And my wife and I are just like on a personal note, empty nesters. So that's kind of fun. My son is getting married in September. So that's kind of exciting. Um, And uh, yeah, I'm just kind of hanging out. And doing doing, doing fun stuff, yeah, doing, yeah, you know, <laughs> trying to keep busy. Somebody said, "Oh, you got a lot of stuff on your plate." I'm like, "Well, I try to keep busy." Like, oh. yeah. It, it, yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. kind of sounds like you don't have to try. Busy right. just come. Busy <laughs> just comes to you, and all you do is say yes. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, I am open from three to four a.m. every morning. So, well, there um, we go. Well, if anybody's got something to to do there, yeah, it's hard to say no. You know, like you see all these consulting people, and they say you've got to be you got to say no to everything. You just have to focus on your purpose. You just have to, I'm like, nah, how boring is that? Like, yeah. like I say yes to some things and I, I, I'm like, why did I say yes to that? And then sometimes like the connections are just unbelievable. And if you think about creativity, creativity is the juxtaposition of two things that don't seem to go together. So for example, I'm working on like gamification and somebody said to me one time and goes, Hey Carl, we're working on this grant to help uh, childcare workers identify child abuse. And we want to use gamification. And I'm like, eh, I'm a little uncomfortable with that, right? I mean, that's not really, but then they explained to me, no, 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 no. And so now I'm working on a grant for the National Institute of Health. And we are every week uh, using um, very serious games and interventions to help childcare workers in Maine and now Pennsylvania through a project called I Look Out to identify possible child abuse correctly because there's a lot of noise in the system like sometimes yeah. misdiagnosed sometimes and so what we're doing is uh, helping the child care workers to to be more intelligent about how they like diagnose it and it's really fascinating and then so i i got to work with um so speaking of engagement i got to work with some folks at penn state university in the film department and they wrote the script and shot a little uh, uh, kind of a story. And I mean, it's really kind of a fascinating thing. So the idea of being able to uh, put these things together that don't seem to go together is, is an awful lot of fun. And that's what makes, so when we think of, you know, our topic today is engagement. So when we think about engagement and engaging learners, I think one of the things that we, we miss is we, put everything in the same stream, right? This dot now has to connect to this one. There's no other way to do it, right? Connect, connect, connect. But really adult learners are confronting like a lot of things at once. And what we should really do is allow them to connect some of the dots and make their own conclusions rather than spoon feed them conclusions. I think a lot of times we bore learners because we decide what they should conclude and that doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. you know so it's that's, messy. that's kind of my thought it's very messy yeah it's, it's the it's the messiness of the learning process this is what i've discovered over the decades is that we we, we fight in corporate america because we love corporate america is very much around efficiency how can we most efficiently get from a to 
to M, you know, and and that's and so we're taught that. And then schools are the same way, right? Any system that gets created, the object is once it's created and funded or whatever and started, you now have to make it efficient. Now it has to function more efficiently. And learning is not an efficient process. Like the best learning is the most inefficient thing ever. And it's exactly what you mentioned because you're bouncing all over the place most of the time. The best, most creative innovations come from that. I I didn't know I should connect that to that or, you know, and I stumbled across it and I tripped on the floor and all of a sudden saw it from a different angle and went like, oh my gosh, you know, you can't, you can't make those experiences efficient at all. And so I think that is why we struggle as an industry, right? In in coming up with this stuff is that we can't, we can't figure out how, although I want to tell you to tell a story about that one particular game, but we can get to that in a second, about the game being a part of allowing those learners to learn. And the game is over once that aha moment is struck, but nobody really knows that that's the goal. Like The goal is different from the actual goal. And so you're forcing them to think and to go through this process. And I, I thought that was that's, that's one very creative way to be able to... Um, utilize what we're talking about, right? This mm-hmm. it's, you're engaging people, but you're giving them that opportunity to have an aha moment. But you're not telling them really how to get to that aha moment. You're guiding them through a different, com- almost completely different process for them to all of a sudden connect those dots themselves, which is super cool. Right. Yeah. I, the whole concept of desirable difficulty kind of fits in with that. And the other mm-hmm. thing is, when, when you talk about the systems and the Addy model, I think one of the things that the Addy model or SAM model or um, those models have done is they squeeze the humanity out of learning. Um, I think the design thinking model tried to put it back in with the empathy map and the and the learner journey and all that kind of stuff. But Structural design, I'm like, okay, we got it. And, and companies are trying to do that too. And then when we have something like the pandemic, they're like, well, how come people are leaving? Because <laughs> you're inhumane, literally inhumane. <laughs> um, so it, it's really kind of a fascinating point that we're inflection well, the, point. Yeah, there's a reason why we, terms like sheep dipping became a thing. Right. When I was at Intel, that was what we <laughs> called it, right? Whenever, whenever one person screwed up, a mandate would come down and say, everybody's got to be trained on this thing. And we're like, oh, another sheep dipping process. Okay, cool. We get to dip all the sheep and, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, I think it's right fascinating, right. you know, like what they're doing in China, the whole, the whole lay down concept, laying down, where they're like, you know what? Let's just jump off of this corporate treadmill and stop contributing to um, this nonsense. And uh, it's gotten some real traction there. And, and in fact, the 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 communist government in China, which you would think in, in a communist government, everybody would be doing the same thing. So it would be no treadmill. But that's a whole nother story. But they're uh, they're eliminating it. Like if you mention that on social media, boop, uh, it disappears. And probably if you mention it too many times, boop, you disappear. Right. So uh, <laughs> it's very interesting. Uh, but I see a lot of that with the great resignation. You know, people going, hey, I'm not engaged uh, at any level. And first chance I get to be engage somewhere else i'm going somewhere else so that's that's interesting yeah. oh i forgot to mention i also have a series on youtube called the unofficial unauthorized history of learning games which oh. has been a ton of fun well, i was gonna um, say yeah you already started that that's not yeah, coming yeah, out yeah. it's there no it's it's there yeah. i'm working on the next one uh, okay. for a couple months but um <laughs> it's a whole series of videos talking about like 
you know, people say, hell, learning games, they're like this brand new thing in the year 2000, serious games. But not true. Like in 1970, there was a book written literally called Serious Games. So, you know, our modern era doesn't have a corner on serious games. In fact, in the 1600s, the Prussians used them. In 1930s, Russia was using them. Um, So, Rachel, it's called the uh, Unofficial Unauthorized History of Learning Games. Um, But sometimes it's called the unauthorized unofficial sometimes i get that mixed up but uh you know that's what happens when you become your own producer publisher (laughs) (laughs) the whole thing goes to hell in a handbasket yeah exactly (laughs) chris are you engaged i am very engaged um so just to to circle back to what you were you were introducing there carl of, of having people you know come to their own conclusions um et cetera it do we have um do we have a name for that as a strategy, um, you know, uh, that people can, you know, I guess if we were putting together a top three or five list, you know, what would what would the name of that be? Uh, how would we describe that? I, I, I like to describe it. I like to think of um, purposeful reflection. Okay. Right. So we uh, guide people to having uh, a reflection on their um, subject and on their concept. But purposefully, there's, I don't believe there's any learning without reflection. There's only experience. So if you experience something and you decide not to reflect on it or the reflection isn't built into the instruction, then you're just having an experience. And so you really need to be forced to reflect on that. And drawing your own conclusions is a part of reflection. Having uh, learners predict what would happen next. Having learners decide who's right or who's wrong, or even make a choice. Like I I give the example oftentimes, like one of the best uh, learning paradigms I think is house hunters. So if you've ever seen that show where there's a couple that have no business being even in the same room, (laughs) let alone a couple, and they have to pick a house. Like one person likes the country, one person likes the city, one person wants lots of rooms, one person wants one room. One person likes to cook. One person hates food. Like, it's really weird. And then they <laughs> and, get and some, three different. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, and somehow they, they're, they're doing this in Europe with a budget that is mind boggling because he's an artisanal clay monger. And, and, and she's a, she uh, I don't newspapers. know, right, she's yeah, a bird, I mean, bird heuristic expert or something, you know, like, right. Yeah. You, know, you uh, say, what's your budget? Well, $1.2 million. You're like, where, where's this money coming from? <laughs> yeah, right. and, and, but, but. But you're involved in that show because they give you three choices and all of them are imperfect. Mm. And, um, you know, at the end, you're screaming like, pick number two. And they pick number three. You're like, what are you doing? Why in the world? That doesn't fit you, right? But it's really an engaging process. And I think a lot of times in L&D, you get back to like, uh, you don't want things to be messy, right? So this is the perfect scenario or the perfect choice. Or, you know, sometimes we'll do... We'll do scenarios where a salesperson does everything right and they don't make the sale because you know what that happens in real life you could do yeah, everything right. right and not get the sale why not put that in training right so that people are are, are used to it i did um i did one time i was doing some scenario-based training and in, in a hospital setting and someone said hey dr Cobb, i have a question and i'm like yes and they said well i was told that you should never have the patient die in the scenario because it really will upset the learner i said well let me ask you a question in this hospital does anybody ever die? 
Because if not, I'm coming here when I get sick. <laughs> like, you know, unfortunately, you know, people do pass away in our hospital. And I said, so you want the first time anybody experiences that to be like the actual situation with the actual family and the, I mean, that just doesn't make any sense, right? We need yeah. to practice those kind of things as, as horrible as they are. I mean, that's why the army does live fire exercises because it's scary as hell with bullets flying around and everything and people freeze all the time. So you've got to help people understand how do I operate in an environment that's not comfortable, that's not neat, that's messy. And sales are the same way, right? I, I mean, um, dealing with clients is the same way. Working in a manufacturing environment is the same way. Trying to figure out the supply chain right now is the same way. So. We need to we need to train for and allow people to have these messy experiences and the efficiency has crushed that out of it. And then so people aren't engaged. They're just tell me the information, tell me the information, tell me the information. But yeah. we all know that you're not going to learn just by somebody telling you the information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, th that idea, though, of having people come to their own conclusions or, or something that phrasing, at least. Um, might give some folks in in some departments of our organization um, oh the shivers the chills the <laughs> the fear because it sounds risky right um, it sounds like what what an organization would prefer would be to give you the exact behavior that they that is expected because we don't want uh, I don't know a, a law a lawsuit or, or loss or, or or you know all those other things that that um, you know that that come with risk so how do you how do you talk to other people in the organization? Um, you know, about that messiness. So, yeah, so that, that's a great question. So, so <laughs> every company says, I want our people to be problem solvers. I want them to be critical <laughs> thinking. And then as soon as they make a decision outside, no, no, you can't do that. That's not part of our procedures or regulations. You know, Paul, like I always argue organizations, uh, you know, if you, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy and like it or not, but you get the synthesis, right? The top level organizations don't want that. They want you to follow a procedure and they want to have, the problem is you can't have a procedure for everything, especially in today's environment. Maybe 50 years ago you could, but you can't today. So um, what I often talk about is preparing people with the right principles and the right concepts. So organizations really need to think about teaching people how they want their employees to act toward customers or act toward each other's or act toward a problem, but not necessarily step by step by step, because that doesn't kind of always, always work out. So if you have uh, people understanding what the core concepts of the company are now, it's one thing, you know, uh, apparently Enron had very high core standards in terms of ethics, but it was the most corrupt organization or one of the most corrupt ever. So people have to live by those principles. You can't just teach those principles and say, you know, can't just have it on a poster. Exactly. Yeah. People are so good at, at sniffing out hypocritical actions and activities, which makes, again, people want to leave companies if everybody's being a hypocrite. So um, you got to live by that and from the top down and make sure that that is um, the element. And then when I have a conversation about people about the messiness, I, I say two things. One is um, we need people to practice in different situations, right? So it's very interesting to me. Um, think of something like football, right? By the time a player gets to professional football team, they should know how to play football, right? <laughs> Six ways to Sunday, right? They played every day for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks. They know football. They are. So why do they have to practice all the time? 
Well, they practice so it becomes muscle memory. So they can do it without thinking. They practice so they can make the kick in the rain, make it in the snow, make it in the sun, make it under pressure, make it loud, make it soft, like all these different environments. Training should be the same way. Why do we say, here's a perfect learning environment <laughs> and uh, you know, no variation and wow, I got it. But we've all been in class where we learn the perfect way to do something and we get back to our desk and go, uh, we never covered this variation in class. I have no idea what to do, right? That mm -hmm. doesn't make sense. We need to teach people to think about the variations, about the messiness, about the principles. What am I trying to accomplish? And then work toward accomplishing that goal. That's really what's mm -hmm. important. I remember reading um, about a decade ago, probably, give or take, um, a quote from um, an NFL coach who said that the um, – the, the the rookies coming in um in, in you know, starting in that time frame um were faster learners overall than previous generations because they've spent their entire teenage years playing uh, you know madden's football so they've already experienced from that perspective um you know a huge variety of plays etc so they've already they're already coming in with that level you know, of experience, but if only from, uh, you know, playing a video game, but they've already got, you know, that much more experience coming in. So they learn the new plays that are being handed to them, you know, faster because they've got a broader framework just from that experience too. Yeah, it's fascinating. A number of college uh, teams and professional teams use a version of Madden football uh, as their playbook. They don't mm -hmm. even have like the three ring binder anymore. Uh, the other interesting thing about that is you can stop it you can zoom in, you can zoom out, you can speed it up, you can slow it down. So you can analyze every bit of why your opponent intercepted the football on that pass and correct for it. So that's when you, when we talk about deliberate practice, um, a lot of people kind of miss that concept. They're like, oh, 10,000 hours and you'll be an expert. That's, that's not even what um, the author of that concept said. He said, you have to have deliberate practice, which means you've got to do something you have to have immediate feedback on what you did right or wrong, and then you have to immediately practice that remediation. That's what deliberate practice is all about, not just 10,000 hours of experience. And that feedback and that reaction, that's why it's easier in music, right? You know right away if somebody did something mm -hmm. wrong in music, it's a little bit harder like in sales because it's a little bit more uh, a variable but those things need to be uh, discussed and discovered as well. So it, it, yeah, it's fascinating um, that the uh, tools that we have to accelerate learning um, to become more efficient, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's interesting because those tools, yeah. right, we're, we're, we're kind of on this like balance, right? Do we want to be efficient? The, um, we wanna... the, the, the messiness of, of, that I was thinking of, of the, you know, having learners come to their own conclusion the, the other part of that equation then is the feedback, right? I mean, we're not randomly setting people up to come to their own conclusions and go out and do it. No, we have to make sure that those conclusions are helpful, useful, practical, or whatever. And that's that's where feedback also then, you know, mm -hmm. comes into that loop. We're not saying, go make go draw your own conclusions. See you later. Uh, you're on your own. And then watching the, you know, the fallout right. of that either. Well, so. well, yeah, right. What we need to do as designers is put parameters around how to draw a conclusion, right? what you should be looking for, what you should be thinking, what questions you should be asking yourself, what things you should be looking at when you create your own conclusion. So we want to make the learners, you know, we talk about empowerment and we talk about, you know, self-reflection, but 
people don't naturally do that unless we give them the tools or the framework to do that. So we've got to create that framework so that when you're in this situation, you need to dissect this. So when I do uh, teaching about game design, we we play games and then we take them apart and that and then we teach you next time you play a game take it apart like this next time you play a game take it apart like this and then that equips you with the tools so that you are now can step back and take a look at that experience and that can be really really helpful mm-hmm um, okay, so this is this feels like a rigged question here. Harold is asking in the in the chat, any experience working with deploying games with virtual reality <laughs> systems? Um, and just in the green room, you were you were mentioning <laughs> this that we did not rig this question, but you were mentioning that you do have an article uh, that you've put in uh, put out on LinkedIn talking about um, learning models uh, and in learning environments in this thing that we're technically car- car- culturally calling the metaverse based on a certain organizations recent uh, rebranding etc right um, so so when i was in graduate school in like the 1990s uh there was a guy named jean lanier and he's still around uh, a tall white guy with huge dreadlocks and he was all about virtual reality he had the helmet which was totally tethered and stuff like that so fast forward, I don't know, 30 some years ago, and we're almost ready for virtual reality, <laughs> right? Very exciting. Um, and so uh, I've, uh, uh, in, I don't know, 2010, maybe, I don't know when that book was written. Um, Tony O'Driscoll and I uh, were diving into a lot of, um, yeah, 2010, we're diving into uh, Second Life and virtual experiences and virtual reality. And I actually did a, um, uh, NSF grant, National Science Foundation. So we looked at what it takes to be successful inside of that type of environment. And we found that there were a number of things that were not done. So for example, when I first went into a 3D virtual environment, um, I was it was English as a second language was the class. So I thought that's kind of cool. So I walk in. So first of all, English is my first and only language. So that was kind of weird. And then second, uh, I'm, I'm this avatar, so really cool. I got to kind of configure my avatar. And I walk into a virtual classroom, sit in a virtual chair, and I watch virtual PowerPoint. And I'm like, oh, what a waste, right? <laughs> if you're going to teach yep. me English, teach me how to book a hotel room. Put me in a hotel lobby. Have me talk to the clerk. Have me in an airport trying to work through security, right? I was at um, – you know, you always think, you know, like I was coming out of Mexico doing some consulting work there and, uh, uh, you know, it's tired and you're getting on the plane and and the woman says agua. And I'm like, agua. She's like, do you have agua? Like, I'm like, I, I have no idea what that means. And she's like, water. I'm like, oh, crap. I do know what that means. Right. So <laughs> in the moment you kind of miss you miss it. Right. But what if I had practiced going through security in a, you know, Spanish and then figured out, oh, okay. Now when she said that I, I would have gotten it much more quickly. Right. So that's kind of an interesting way to, to think about it. Now see Wendy. So um, there are a number of things that we need to think about. One is, is it has to be contextually centered, right? So we need to be in the context of what we're learning. It needs to be somewhat discovery based as we're in this virtual environment. We need to discover the learning. We know that adult learners learn best when they know they don't know something. So my belief is as you're creating learning in that environment, you create situations where the adult learner fails. 
And then the adult learner figures out, oh, this is why I failed. This is what I need to do to make it uh, different. That environment is great for collaboration, right? Somebody asked me the other day, like, um, about games, like, oh, should, why do you mention collaboration games for learning and development in an organization? I'm like, because everybody collaborates in an organization. Uh, the problem with a lot of the games in the, in the Northern Hemisphere is that they're all competitive games, right? Somebody wins, everybody else loses. But in a company, if you do that, then you have fiefdoms, then you have sub-optimization. You really want everybody to work together. So your paradigm should be cooperation, collaboration, not competition. So why are you playing games where it's competition when people should collaborate, right? So those kind of things need to happen in the, the virtual world. The other thing is to think about, you know, we've got time and perspective that we can play with in a virtual world that's really hard to do almost in any other place. So why not do that, right? Um, huge opportunities miss there. Let's shrink down. Let's get large. Let's speed up. What happens when you say this to a customer six months later, right? What's their reaction? Let's yeah. look at that. So, so the metaverse allows you to do those things and allows you to be different. But it's just like, um, you know, the very first movies that were ever made were literally a projector set up in front of a stage and people recorded a play. And it took years and years and years for people to figure out, hey, if we blur the screen and we make it go black, that's a time shift. Ah, okay. We can swoop down with the camera and make it look like you're flying. Oh, okay. You know, so all these new paradigms that we don't even think about, we take for granted as we're watching TV or as we're watching a movie, uh, had to be developed over time. And that language had to be created. And in virtual realities, we haven't yet created that kind of a language. I remember, you know, uh, two things that kind of I thought were funny about virtual worlds. Well, um, <laughs> I went to Finland one time for a virtual world conference. And I'm like, well, if virtual worlds are so great, why am I flying to Finland? Shouldn't we be doing this in the virtual world? The second one that was really kind of interesting is we had all these beautiful spaces in these virtual worlds. We had like a virtual coliseum, we had virtual amphitheaters, we had, but we were watching PowerPoint, right? Why not bring me into a room and have me go through a process, right? Have me maybe manufacturing something, then talk to me about you know, here, notice we can zoom in here. And in a half an hour, I'm going to teach you how to manufacture this thing that you didn't know how before. This is a model that we need to use. So now, understandably, it's difficult to do that and take some time. And it's a lot easier to throw up the PowerPoints or, or slides or whatever. But if we really want to move metaverse to the next level, we've got to be thinking about experiences and field trips, not instruction lessons and courses. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, that's the that's the delicate balance we we have to strike right it's that di it's it's we can creatively think about an imaginative really cool experience that would make for an outstanding training session but it's like it's like way up here make sure my hand doesn't go off the screen like right it's going to cost this much it's going to take this many resources and it's just it's going to be this crazy thing and then there's you know powerpoint and everything else you know down here so for every dollar or resource spent or used how much better does it really get and how much you know do you really need 
to go that extra mile in order to get the same result, right? The thing that always comes to my mind was even after, um, you know, multi-million dollar virtual flight simulators were created and perfected and they just were like totally awesome and you get inside and you're in a real cockpit and you got the screens in front of you and it looks like you're flying. Even when those were built, they still trained pilots with a cardboard poster of what the dashboard looks like in order to teach them to visually be able to see where everything is when they're first learning it. So it's like this this weird balance between really cheap and effective for certain things, but then really expensive and hit that really high mark for the other things, you know, and right. then where, where do you ride in the middle for us, us normal folks working in corporate America, right? We are a one man band in a company and you've got to train the whole entire workforce or you're doing onboarding or, you know, just all the things that we do. I think, I think that's the, that's the big struggle. And I, I think right, for right everybody on. in the chat thinking through this yeah. right there, they're like, okay, how can I apply everything that we're talking about today? And it's like, at what level do I need to get to? And like, what do I do? Right. But it's, I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a continuum. Right. So if a pilot just trained on those cardboard things, I'll let you get on that plane. Right. <laughs> so right. Yeah. It's a progression. Right. Sure. So you start with the cardboard and then you move up. So that is really what we need to think about. So maybe we start with here's the five tenets of sales you need to know. Then we put them in a sales conversation, right? And then we put them in front of a client. Too often, we say, here's the five things you know. Now go figure out how to apply them in <laughs> real life. Go start making cold calls. Yeah. Right, yeah. And the consequences <laughs> are pretty high, right? So what, we, what we're missing, I think, and what the virtual or the metaverse allows us to do is fill in that gap right there. So and rather than just just give the simple text-based things, which you have to have as a grounding, right? If we look at, if we look at, at, at uh, uh, you know, we have to have declarative knowledge, conceptual knowledge, and you have to have procedural knowledge, rules-based knowledge. You know, you have to have that. You have to go through that process. But we, I think, are really good at the declarative knowledge and conceptual knowledge, and then we fall the heck apart mm -hmm. on the rest of it. Yeah. So I think virtual or metaverse will allow us to kind of do that. And, and that's what we need to think about. We need to think about that continuum. It's something that uh, Marshall McLuhan said 50 plus years ago, that every time there's a new media that comes along, the first thing we start doing with it is doing what we did with the previous do, media. Doing the old medium. In you know, the whether that's, media. you know, yeah. moving, moving from radio to television, et cetera. And it's only then once we, you know, once that, uh, that new medium starts to open up and we, you know, start tweaking things that we actually end up then creating the grammar, the language structures, that are actually, you know, best suited for or take best advantage of that new media. We're guilty of that so often in, in the e-learning world. I mean, people standing in front of rooms with chalkboards and then slide decks and then, you know, PowerPoints. And now we make e-learning courses where people hear a voice and it just and it, there's words going by as bullet points. And, um, you know, we take the thing that we've always known or what we assume is the thing, uh, the, the mode of instruction. Yeah, we, we, we apply it to the next thing that comes along. I think uh, we're our own started, worst so. enemy, too. Right. And I think I think there's there's this there's a movement with technology that I think we have totally maybe not maybe not everybody, but in general at the highest level. Right. Like I think about things like TikTok. I know I, I to say even say the words. I'm sure people are rolling their eyes and going, oh, God, let's not go down this road. But. I mean, that was, that's a new 
use, right? That's that transition, right? Nobody, everybody, when that first came out, everybody thought it was stupid. And why would you sing songs along? And, you know, and it was just all little kids singing songs or copying songs or, you know, doing whatever. And then it became a platform for something else. And, and then when we started having conversations about, you know, when mobile devices came out, you know, we're out there forcing the past on everybody by saying, damn it, if you're going to shoot video, turn your camera landscape sideways and shoot it that way, you know, and everybody's, but no, people are like, no, I want to, I want to hold my camera up vertically and I want to take vertical video. So then everybody was like, no, no vertical video, no vertical video, only because in the past, Everything was, you know, landscape. And we, even in our own industry, tried to shoot that down. Don't do vertical video. Don't do vertical video. Now, I can't get people to not shoot portrait. Every time I see my kids, every time I see my wife, for years I was one of those people saying, turn it landscape, turn it this way, you know, and that's the way we see it on the TV and all of that, and it won't crop and everything. But I think... So I think what to, your, to the point of the historical perspective on all that stuff, I think we're in it, and there are recent examples of new languages, right, and new paradigms in the technology. We just kind of ignore it. We just we just kind of or fight think, it. Yeah, we fight it. It's, it's, oh, it's just a trend, and it's going to go away, you know. And so I'm just going to keep doing what I do, and um, I, I think that's where that that's where we become our own worst enemy for you know sadly yeah what yeah i mean it's it's very interesting that if we if we leverage technology correctly we'll be able to to do great things but as we leverage that we still need to think about humans and human tendencies right the the easier thing to do is hold your phone up like this right so people are going to do that right so that's a human tendency so we can't fight that it's kind of like um, when they first put in uh, buildings and, and grass, they smart architects wait until people walk and then they pave the pathways. Dumb ones put pathways in there and then people take shortcuts all the time, right? So we've got we've to know about those shortcuts and we've got to uh, wait until they naturally kind of evolve rather than kind of putting the rules together and things like that. But, but the one thing about corporations is, is – the one thing you don't want to do is make a mistake. So people will stick to the traditional methodology, the the PowerPoint, the classroom instruction, all that kind of stuff, because that's not a mistake. Like, hey, yeah. it's been done this way for a year. I'm, you know, that's safe. You do a virtual world and it crashes and burns. Mm -hmm. uh, see, I told you. See, this will never work. This is just a fad. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, you've got to, be, you know, you're you're in that situation and when you think about it well there's there's deep psychology research and stuff that's been done on that that the fear of loss is so powerful and so much more powerful than than any other emotion any excitement you could feel towards hey something new or anything like that the, the fear of losing what you're already what you already have whenever change is coming is so powerful that it, this is why it's so hard for people to engage with and to, uh, you know, and, and to get, to get past it, right. To, to see something new and go, Oh, we should try that. Or we should, you know, give it a shot. And that, that fear of failure or fear of losing, you know, status or losing what we've done in the past. I don't know, but 
we're starting to get close to the end here, and I want people. I want you to tell the story of um, that game you were telling me about because I think it's a fantastic example of having people come to their own conclusion. Uh, do you remember? Yeah, so the one? I think it's the MIT beer distribution game. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's so, and that's actually the the um, the theme of my latest unauthorized unofficial that is is uh, not yet recorded, but oh, good. Uh, is already written, and so it should be out hopefully over Thanksgiving break. Um, but basically, there's a game called the MIT beer distribution game, and what happens is that um, everybody sits in a long, and it's a long. Uh, game mat. Everybody sits there and somebody's a retailer, somebody's a distributor, wholesaler, uh, someone's the factory, the beer factory. And they, MIT developed this back in the 1960s. And what happens is you get orders and everybody starts filling the orders and it goes well. And then all of a sudden you get like this order that you can't fill and everybody freaks out, right? They're like, oh my gosh. And so then they start ordering way more than they could possibly need. But by ordering way more than you possibly need, it puts an unnecessary strain on the entire system. And so then all of a sudden you get this whiplash effect because people order a lot. And this is exactly what's happening right now in the supply chain. Exactly. So people order a lot because they, wa they want to make sure that they get it and they'll have enough. And then after they get enough, the demand kind of dies down and they're stuck with all this inventory. So then they don't order inventory next time because – um, they don't want to have excess inventory because inventory costs money so that they don't order. Then all of a sudden, then they have a shortage and then it, kind of, it goes back up again, right? So it's exactly like uh, the toilet paper shortage and the sanitizer shortage and kind of all that. <laughs> Rachel, I don't know. That would be funny if they, if they did. I, I guess you could <laughs> change it to the toilet paper game. Yeah. Um, but when you play that game, uh, I guess, spoiler alert, when you play that game, uh, halfway through or partway through the game you stop and you debrief and uh executive it's used in executives and in colleges and people get this aha moment that oh my goodness my actions not the system my actions caused this whiplash effect it wasn't the spike in demand because actually there's a very small spike in demand and uh if you ignore it or if you don't overreact you're fine. But everyone, even when they know, actually tend to overreact and it causes that whiplash effect. So when I think of serious games, one kind of serious game I think of is this aha game where you can really only play the game one time, but it gives you this visceral like, oh, <laughs> I want to say, oh, you know, sh dot 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 t, <laughs> right? You've got oh, this. Toilet. Oh, wow. toilet paper, oh, toilet paper uh, <laughs> moment, right? The, the toilet so, paper is hitting the fan. <laughs> exactly. And so, so that kind of game teaches us to think uh, in a, a, a way about a system where many of us don't think systematically. Many of us think in our, as someone has mentioned before, our stovepipes, right? So a game can teach you how to think as a system and how systems react and rather than actually um, – how you want them to react. And a lot of times when we're in organizations, uh, we, with customers and, and even with people we deal with, we, we don't get the opportunity to think at the system level. We're too busy doing the day-to-day. -day. And one of the things that, two things that games can do is help us think systematically, but what they can also do is help us think in a non-linear fashion. So we're living in a non-linear world, right? So 
it's really not one thing that's causing the supply chain problem because if it was, they would just go in, solve the problem with the infrastructure and be done, right? But it's yeah. a lots of different things, right? So people say, oh, it's not a shortage of truck drivers. Well, yeah, in some places it is, but not everywhere. Oh, it's a shortage of dock workers. In some places it is, yeah. Oh, it's the fact that you get more money for retaining, re returning a, a container. Well, in some places, so it, it's a conglomerate of uh, reasons causing this. Oh, people are, are, are you know, hoarding toilet paper. Well, some cases, but also people at home needed more toilet paper at home because they weren't at work, right? So there was that issue. So a game is not played depending on the game, but many games uh, can be designed not to be played in a linear fashion. They can be played in a non-linear fashion, like Catan, for example, or Pandemic, for example. Um, yeah, that's meta. So, but you can really uh, play games in this non-linear fashion and make conclusions uh, that tie back to, oh, okay, it's more than one force. I have to think about more than one thing when I address this. I have to think about unintended consequences. And a lot of times, because we're making decisions so quickly, we don't think of these unintended consequences. And so games can allow us to step back, think through those unintended consequences, and a number of uh, tools are out there that allow you to think and play in a non-linear fashion. Uh, you can play digital board games. So you don't even have to be in the same room. So you don't have to worry about you know anything along those lines, but you can all play via Zoom or um, Microsoft Teams or uh, Ring or whatever it happens to be uh, in this uh, digital environment, getting that sense of being uh, uh, together in the same room. So lots of really interesting ways that games can give us aha moments and help us think in this this nonlinear fashion. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a good place. And I think Brent's running the music. That sounds like a good place anyway for us to, to bring stuff to a conclusion. I think it was Groucho Marx who said, I never met a game I didn't want to play and I never met a verse I didn't want to sing. <laughs> and I don't know. That, that's been rattling in my brain for a little bit in this session. Right. I'm going to put eyes plays over. <laughs> some of the contact links and article stuff uh, in the in the chat if anybody's yep, interested. for sure. Lots of good stuff for everybody to check out there with those links. And don't forget, folks, the recording is here. So if you need to come back for these links later, you can always just come back to the same session and get the uh, the info. Just scroll down in the chat. Um, we will also share some of those in our uh, idiotic LinkedIn group. Brent, just toss the link to that in there um, and uh, join us there after the session and follow up some stuff. And we'll post a version of this to the uh, Domino blog as well uh, yeah. later today or tomorrow. So. Indeed, and Carl mentioned an event going on this week. We've got two of the 30 under 30 folks joining us next week to talk about that experience and uh, for everybody to get to know some of the younger folks in the industry. So awesome. looking forward to Idiotic next week as well. Yeah, thanks yeah. again, Carl. Yeah, Carl, thanks Thank so much you. for joining us. These are always awesome sessions. So much. Thanks so for having me. A lot of fun. Cover, so. Awesome. Thanks, everybody, in the chat. As always, chats and questions were, were great this week. Uh, love to see that learner engagement or that audience engagement. Have a great time, and we'll see everybody next week. Indeed. Adios, Bye, everybody. Everyone. Thanks for hanging out. Let's dance uh, a little bit.